You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, really delighted to see uh, y'all here today. Even uh, I see her right now, and I'm going to embarrass her, Margaret Pope. Uh, Margaret's one of uh, our own. We sent her off. She's in full-time ministry up in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and uh, is at Christ Church with our friend Paul Walker. Margaret, so glad to have you back home uh, for Thanksgiving. Welcome back. Um, if you're someone like Margaret and I just don't see you, uh, don't think I don't care. I just don't see you. Um, but I saw Margaret. Leslie Hausman. Uh, Leslie Hausman's back. So, Leslie, good to see you and, and all your, well, two of your men. Where are the rest of your men? Okay, Leslie. Leslie uh, and uh, her family evangelizing Texas uh, one ranch at a time. So, God bless you. Welcome back, Leslie. It's really great to have uh, Scott Keith and Rod Rosenblatt with us. Uh, we've had uh, Rod with us before, but we've never had Scott and so it's a, a delight to have uh, you both with us. Uh, and they were with us Thursday, uh, Friday night uh, and uh, Saturday morning. Uh, Friday night, thank you uh, to David and Debbie Tanner for hosting that. Uh, and then uh, Saturday morning uh, was just for the men. And now here we are uh, Sunday morning. And uh, there's some books uh, available that uh, they are both uh, responsible for. Um, uh, this book, uh, Christ Alone, which is really uh, the gospel for those who have been burned by the church. Uh, this is even uh, a new edition. The other one was sort of green and looked like a checkbook. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that uh, has gotten well-worn uh, in my study. Uh, Rod wrote that a couple years back. And really, uh, that was the impetus for, for the 1517, uh, the Legacy 1517 project, wasn't it? The, the yeah, sort that of... and the lecture, the gospel for those broken by the church, which yeah. I did some time ago. And then, uh, and Scott uh, has written uh, The Jagged Word, A Field Guide to Being uh, a Man. And, uh, and then uh, also uh, Scott wrote uh, Being Dad, Father is a Picture of God's Grace. And uh, both, uh, all, all of these are really wonderful and are available in our bookstore and will be uh, available uh, this morning. Um, but uh, uh, both of you have uh, terminal degrees in theology, and, let, and yet you understand the necessity of, um, of a theology that is rooted in the reality of the human condition. Uh, that, uh, as, as our friend Fitzsimmons Allison said, heresy is cruel. Uh, it, 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 hurts, it hurts people. And so tell us, well, actually, we should probably pray uh, first, uh, because apart from him, we can do nothing. So let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for your grace and your mercy and your truth. And Lord, uh, that you are for us, full stop. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning, that we might indeed uh, see and hear Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so was that a little bit of what prompted the 1517? <clears throat> a little bit. Engineer? Background, years and years ago, I was strolling along one of the paths on campus with a guy who was a math prof. And Robert Meyer was a polymath. He knew my field better than I know it, and others as well. And we were strolling along a path, and Robert looked at me and he said, what do you think was the greatest discovery in the 16th century? And I said, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ and his work alone. He said, I used to think that too. 
prompted the question, what do you think now then? He said, I think it was a a rediscovery of a true doctrine of sin. Hmm. Where you really are guilty, God-hater, impotent, unable. You know, you just tick them off from the New Testament. And he said, without that, it never would have gotten started. Hmm. I've thought about that for years. Hmm. Yeah, that was his take, and it meant a lot to me. And so that, that, that kind of fueled, uh, because we're in the 500th anniversary of, of the Reformation, and uh, every once in a while here at the Advent, we get criticisms uh, just once in a while that, you know, that happened 500 years ago. Yeah. What in the world does that have to do with us yep. today? That might have been true of their day yeah. and age, but not ours. Yeah. The guy who's really good on that is Dr. Horton. And he'll slam away at it that our condition is just the same as it was early on and in the 16th and now. The need for a Savior is just as deep and just as one-sided. Even if you look at it historically, even the reforms of the Reformation didn't last long even in their own lands. I mean, they were lost to uh, Roman Catholic re-influence. They were lost to infighting among... Uh, the Protestants, um, even without infighting, some of the doctrines like in, within Lutheranism, in 17th century Lutheranism, a lot of those theologians go back to the early Catholic ways as far as how they think about faith and grace and things like that. I mean, the, the reality is, is that, I mean, even if you look at the New Testament times, um, within Paul's own lifetime, he's writing to the Galatians, saying, yep. what have you done with the gospel? Yep. You know, and uh, this is... It was, it's called a reformation, but it's really a rediscovery, you know, and, and this is something that we sort of have to be vigilant to rediscover the power of the gospel of Christ Jesus for us all, for the forgiveness, forgiveness of our sins, you know, daily. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We're, we're inclined to go back to the law. Yep. Right. Luther used to be astounded that the Roman answers to what he was saying amounted to, well, faith is easy. Mm. Well, that was the difference in the understanding of the word faith. To a good Roman Catholic, what faith means is, I believe whatever the church teaches. And Luther realized that what he was saying about the gospel of Christ was, every single morning, you're going to go through a fight to believe something that is completely anti-intuitive, that you are saved by somebody else's work, not yours. And through the day, you're going to be coming up against that all the time. What do you mean faith is easy? And so it's, um, would it be fair to say, you know, a lot of people think that we look back at the 16th century and see it as some kind of golden age. Uh, but in fact, even, original sin is evenly distributed. That, yeah. That yeah. The, the need yeah. of the message 500 yeah. years ago is the need today. Yeah. And, Chesterton wrote one time, there's at least one doctrine of Christianity that's immediately available to us every day. <laughs> right. Original sin. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think it's undeniable that during the 16th century, for whatever reason, providentially, God collected together an incredibly talented group of people that um, brought, forth, brought forth significant change. I mean, not only theologically, but politically and sociologically in all different ways. Yeah. I mean, And that wasn't the plan. No, and that wasn't the plan. It, and, it, and it happened. I mean, it's, it's a worthy thing to celebrate. It's a worthy, it's a worthy uh, time to look to and say, what can we learn from that time? It's never good for us to sort of get stuck in the past either, but at the same time, we can look back and see, you know, 
God blessed these people, and yep. in turn, they blessed us. And it's a good thing to study that and to learn about that and to figure out how we can utilize those blessings that they brought forward. Yeah, Roland Bainton of Yale one time wrote, and it was not in his book, Here I Stand, but he had said it uh, in some context. If you try to understand the 16th century through the growing nationalism, the decline of feudalism, and all, he lists all these factors that are common to good historians, he said, you were never going to understand the 16th century. It was a totally theological century. And that's why for most secular historians, it's a total mystery. Yeah. Mm. So would it be, so could you say then that, that the Reformation, more than just being a rediscovery of, of the gospel or a real doctrine of original sin, it was moreover a move of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I'd like to believe in my idealized mental world <clears throat> that what changed Europe in the 16th century was the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone on account of the work of Christ alone. But the reality is what really cracked it was the Lutheran doctrine of vocation yeah. and the priesthood of all believers. Right. Where there no longer were two levels of Christians, that was done. And that the bootmaker who makes a quality boot and sells it for a fair price is praising God as he's doing it. Right. That this is as holy, or Luther's illustration was a mother changing diapers is doing more than any monk ever did. Than a thousand monks have ever done. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't think those two are easily separated, though. I mean, I don't think you can actually have our doctrine of vocation without our doctrine of no. justification. If you, if you in some way hold to the, re, the idea that you have to justify yourself, um, you'll never have a doctrine of vocation that frees you to serve God just by being who you're called to be in your everyday life. Yep. It'll always go back to you having to do something special to please God, either in church, outside of church, helping old ladies across the street, whatever. Um, unless you have a pure doctrine of justification, you can't be freed from this sort of idea that you have to serve God in some quote-unquote special way, and thus you'll never have the doctrine of justification. Yeah, I mean, that's a word for the church today because even doing some research, we see millennials saying, I, I want to make a difference. Yeah. I, I want to make an impact. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that, uh, even though it might be separated from the Christian faith, there's this overriding um, drive to to really uh, make an impact uh, in the world. And so how is the ministry that y'all are a part of uh, with uh, Legacy uh, 1517, uh, how is it addressing, how is it preaching the gospel in today's context? Well, I think back to a wonderful member here when I was here years ago and in the Q&A, he bravely stood up, his lawyer. He said, I'm new to this thing, Rod. He said, I've only been in this thing a matter of a short time. What would your counsel be to me as to what I should do? And I answered, absolutely nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Rest. Go to everything that lays out for you what Christ did for you. In any kind of way you can find it. During Lent, find somebody who's teaching on the words associated with the cross. How does the cross work? How does it rescue the death of a Jew 2,000 years ago? Have anything to do with me? Go to those and just drink it in and don't worry about doing. Yeah, because that's, I mean, that's a lot that's of... That's all of us. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the most faithful of people say, what's next? 
what, what's next? What, what can I do uh, to, to take it uh, to the next level? And I think you allude a little bit to this, uh, Rod, in, in some of your work. Of, um, and my experience has been uh, of, of members who uh, all of a sudden throw themselves into the life of the church. Yep. And then you think, where in the world did they go? Uh, they're gone, and so they either need to yep. uh, they either need to keep it up, uh, or uh, they they realize you know what I, I'm just I can't lie anymore. Mm-hmm. I can't keep up this act. Yeah, uh, we will if we have conversations. Even Dr. Horton and me, if we have conversations about worship, we have a different concept of worship even within the two branches of the Reformation. If he asks me, why do you worship? I say, I go there to receive God's good gifts. Period. When I was, yeah, period. When I was a kid, we had a hymnal where it was labeled the divine service. That never made sense to well, me. We still do. And it, never, it doesn't make sense to me. Either. Yeah. <laughs> it sounded to me like they we were. We have four of them in our current hymnal. Yeah. Uh, it sounded to me as a kid as if. Uh, this what's following is inspired, like the Bible text. Yeah, that's not what it means. And it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is, come and let God, the true God, serve you and give you gifts. Open your mouth. Take in, this is the true body of Christ given into death for your sin. Or take and drink, this is the true blood of Christ given into death for your sin. Drink, all of you. But that was completely uh, ununderstandable to me when I read the heading on uh, in the hymnal. Yeah, it makes it sound like you think that the service itself is divine, yeah. sort of on its own. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, because most, I, I would feel strong in saying this, that most Christians, especially in America, think that, um, that our gatherings on Sunday are about what we can do for God, that it's that God is the audience. Yeah. And, and, there it is. And it's, and it's from us there it to is. God rather than from God like, to us. Big difference. Think we, think, we think about that and concerning our whole Christian life. And sometimes churches will have me come out and teach vocation. And I'll say, this is usually a very disappointing topic for a lot of people in the room because I go in and I say, when people first become Christian or they have a redis- you know, gospel rediscovery or something like that or enlivened, they, the first thing they want to know is, what can I do for God? Yep. And I come into a vocation class, and I say, well, I've got really bad news for you. Nothing. <laughs> you can do nothing for God. And if you think about it, you know, you're talking about the almighty creator of heaven and earth. He spoke the universe into existence. He spoke your salva- you into existence, spoke your salvation into existence on account of Christ. And you sit here as the lowly sinner who, you know, some days, because we eat too much pie, can't even tie our own shoes, and wonder, what can I do for God? Mm-hmm. You know, the answer is nothing. But the... The good news on the flip side of that, concerning the doctrine of vocation, because everything that he does for you on account of Christ, you're not bound to do anything, but you're free then to actually serve those people that he's put in your life. And we get really tied up even when Christ says, you know, tells the story, whatever the, the, uh, you've done for two of these, for my brethren you've done for me. It's exactly what he means there. I mean, he's going right at the heart of the reality that you can't, you can't come to church and serve him. Yeah, I don't need anything yeah. you've got. But the people that he's given you do. Right. You know, and in, and in doing just the normal daily stuff for them, you're serving him. In normal daily stuff. That's why Rod can say to somebody who's new to the faith and says, what can I do? He can actually say, do nothing. 
Right. Or you could even say, do nothing except for what you would normally do. I mean, that's the full story, that the Luther story about the bootmaker. This guy comes to him and says, Dr. Luther, Dr. Luther, I just heard the gospel for the first time. What should I do? And Luther, perceiving that he's saying, should I give up everything that I, that I have a and monk? Go become a monk? Luther says, what is it that you do now, sir? He says, well, I make shoes. He says, well, then go back to your shop. Make shoes and sell them at a fair price. And, then, and in so doing, you're doing that to the glory of God. Well, one of the, um, you know, uh, talking about vocation, uh, one of the callings that you two have a particular heart for is, um, uh, in, you know, a, a great number of people in the United States if, and around the world fall into this position, and that's of being a dad. And, uh, and the idea that, that many Christians have been given as the dad is uh, the disciplinarian. Uh, just wait till your dad gets home. Uh, and, and to uh, enforce uh, or reinforce what mom has tried to do uh, all day long. Yep. And yet you're really confronting that and saying, actually, that, that's not uh, the Bible's understanding of what fathers are for. Tell us a little bit about what uh, y'all are doing in that area. Oh, I was going to defer to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's a calling that, that is sort of been lost in a whole bunch of to-do lists. And it'll never, never get there. Uh, find sometime George MacDonald, whom Luther looked, or uh, Lewis looked to with a lot of respect. George MacDonald wrote a poem one time, To My Father. Dig that out somewhere. It's in the back of Being Dad. Oh, yeah, there. Scott has it printed in the back of Being Dad. Um, uh, his thanks to his father for almost everything late awakened in his life. He didn't recognize it at all as a young son. But he looks back and he said, everything good I know came from you. Uh, That's kind of foreign to us. And it's not a to-do list. It's an outworking of, I'm your father, and my calling is to protect you, rear you, see as best I can that things go well, equip you, and I'll do it just by being dad. Right. Just that. Yeah. It's not a list. It's, um, it's the hardest and the easiest message that you could, we could ever say to all the men out there is that, you know, it's hard because it's so, uh, we, we're leaving it sort of so undefined. And it's easy, too, because it's just asking you to get up and be who you are in the life of your family. Mm-hmm or be who you're called to be, or who, you know, even who you, what you think is, is the right thing to do without sort of the societal, weird societal pressures that are going on right now concerning what it is to be a man, and it's bad to be a man, or bad to be masculine, or bad to be a dad. In the way we're asking you to sort of check those out of your brain a little bit, and even some of what comes from the church, that your job is... You know, to be the ultimate disciplinarian in your house, the final word, Killer. the deeper voice and the bigger biceps to mom, you know. And Well, you know, you've kind of hit on it. I mean, what is uh, we're dealing with in our culture is you have a lot of uh, uh, godly men who are saying, I, I want to be the kind of dad uh, that God wants me to be. And yet I, I hear of a heavenly father who sent his son into the world in order that we might be saved. And yet in my own life, I have no model 
of right. what it means to yeah, be a dad. Kids don't even know what it means instruction to be a son. Book. Yeah. 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 Well, and I'd say don't read the Christian books out there. I I suffered for through that for you. I read about forty two of them oh. researching for this, and I can tell you, I'm not going to use ill language, but I can tell you they're all bad, um, worse than that. I mean, the problem is, is that they all present a message that's actually a societal message. There's, in my mind, there's only two societal messages about being a man and being a dad. Um, one, well, maybe three now. You have, on the one side, um, the guy who just sits around and does nothing, is completely incapable, and mom runs the whole house. She's sort of the super mom, and he's sort of the idiot. idiot the Allstate um, commercials. Yeah, the Allstate. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Don't even get me going. <laughs> <clears throat> on the other side, you have the guy who um, is the heavy you know, and actually kind of mean, and, um, the, you know, the chauvinist pig sort of, he does run his house, but he runs it through brute force and power. Um, the, you have this other weird one now of uh, the whole homosexual movement and gay marriage and everything and raising families that way, that's sort of a third one. But you don't have what I actually think is a biblical model, which is a man, one, just being there, just being in the house. If you're doing that, you know, there's 42% of children in the United States grow up without any father in the home. So if you're being there, you're really, that's step one. Now, Scott, but, but elaborate, because that's not just any, not just a biological father, no, that's not any just fatherly presence. Father. That's any sustained father presence in the home, um, consistent, you know, more for, for more than uh, a few months at a time. The, the flip side, what I say in the class is bad to that is the data shows that they have multiple father influences in and out of the house um, constantly, but 42% of children. So one, be there, and then two, I'd say, even if it's not your natural inclination, sort of search back to maybe what you would have wanted if you had had one, like I, I didn't, had had a father, what you would have wanted his natural inclinations to be and go with that, which is being the mouthpiece of grace, forgiveness, the rescuer, you know, sort of the, the um, fairy tale examples, if you will. I mean, the, the archetypal pictures. I mean, that's, if there is a goal, that is the goal. Now, when I say that, that sounds very legalistic and you know, presses down on a lot of guys out there. And I say, listen, this isn't, this isn't a law thing in my mind. It's a freedom thing. You're free in Christ. You're going to mess this up 100, 100 ways from Sunday every week. And every time you do, you're forgiven in Christ for, the, for those failures. And even if you, you know, your kids are already raised and you feel like you me already messed it up or whatever, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven for that. Move past it. Let's go. You're free now. You're free to be who God has called you to be. Strong, capable, loving, gracious, kind, merciful, forgiving men in the lives of those people that God has given to you. Yeah, in uh, Roald Dahl's book, I, I don't think I've ever quoted Roald Dahl uh, in a Sunday school class before, but in Matilda... Uh, there's this interaction between Matilda, who's so precocious and is 100% right about everything. Right. Uh, and, I've got two uh, of those. And, uh, but, but in a really lovely way, and the parents who are, who are and, and the parent is saying to her, I'm big, you're little. Oh, yeah. I'm right, you're, you're wrong. wrong. Yep. And how many of us, you know, we say, oh, well, that's, that's tough, but how many of us come home, at the, the, the husband comes home, and the wife says, they're not listening, they're acting out, and I need you to be on the same page with me because we have got to drop the hammer on these kids yeah. and crush their hearts um, in, order, in yeah. order that they might be able to hear the gospel. But, so that's the one part. Yeah. Uh, but the other part is, do we ever get around to administering yeah. the gospel? Yeah. 
And then how do we listen to the work? How do we know that the law is doing its work? I think the tears are a good sign. You know, the funny thing to me is that situation usually occurs. Every time I've walked into it, you know, you got to stand with me. We got to crush them. And everybody's been crying for three hours. And you're going, okay. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they're not crushed already. And you're not crushed already. You know, I'm crushed and I just got in the door, you know. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of hubris and arrogance that goes on with this idea that because we're the parents and they're the kids that we're always right and they're always wrong, it sort of denies our anthropology, our theological anthropology. You know, and, and on our churches on Sunday, we get up every Sunday and say, "I a poor miserable sinner," you know, and it's like as soon as we become parents and are dealing with a parental situation, that phrase doesn't apply to us anymore <laughs> no. because we're completely right and you're completely wrong. No. It's. I think it's kind of dangerous. Yeah, anytime the, the basic setup is I'm bigger and yeah. I'm always right, that'll hold for a while they're under your thumb and it'll collapse 10 minutes after they're not. You work at a college where yeah. finally they're out from underneath uh, the home roof and uh, you may have controlled it for X number of years, but <coughs> just their growing up, is going to send them outside your influence. Well, yeah. And I, th- I remember coming home one time. My son can tell this story in detail. I came home one afternoon or one evening and from work, and the whole house was in a schmozzle uh, as soon as I walked in the door. And again, my wife said, I need you to back me up on this, which always made me suspicious. Um, I get suspicious of we think. We, yeah. that linking of mom and dad is a team again, you. Anyway, so I, I, I kind of shook my head, and I um, reached for my wallet, and I pulled out my Visa card, and I gave it to my wife, and I said, why don't you go over to Newport Beach? Go to the nicest hotel over there, uh, have a massage, do whatever you want. Just put it on the card, and I'm going to do whatever I can to clean up whatever in the world you created today. <laughs> but what is it you know uh then what do you say Good to the to the couple that's that's sitting out there and they're like well so are you saying that mom is is bad cop and and that dad is good cop in some ways the ontology of it unfair as it sounds to us if mom's at home all day she's thrown <laughs> into that whether it sounds fair or not uh, but the kids still need deliverance from mom as she's adjudicated and umpired all day long, well or badly, somebody's got to come as a prince and lift the whole thing off for them. So I heard that story like in 2005, and I was already raising my kids, and I was already doing my best to sort of incorporate the Rosenblattian way of being a dad. And so I walk into a situation after work, come home, and it's World War III in my house, and everybody's crying, and I try this, you know, I'm like, pull out the credit card. You go, blah, 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 and I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to... And um, it's funny, that went by, and we, that happened a couple times, and um, since Brian being dad, I use a similar example to that quite a bit when I'm teaching, and my wife often comes with me to the being dad gigs and sells books and just hangs out and we make it a weekend or whatever. And a couple months ago, after a gig up in Michigan, we were driving to the airport, and she said, you know... Those times when you did that, you thought you were just delivering the kids, but you were delivering me too. You know, the time that you came in and said, 
you know what, honey, I've got this handled. Why don't you go uh, get a glass of wine with your friends or why don't you go see a movie or why don't you go whatever, I'll handle this. She said, you thought you were just delivering the kids, but that wasn't the reality at all. I got a break that I needed to sort of readjust. And so I, I think it's important, you know. Yeah, so the, the propensity of parents to kind of feel like um, I need to bring my child up in the way that they should go uh, and uh, an almost default uh, position with the law. But, Rod, you said something yesterday with the men about that we grossly overestimate the freedom of a child, uh, the, the sort of blissfulness of a child when, in fact, they are under authority uh, as much as, as we are as adults in our daily routines and, and all of that. Yeah, it, it is similar. Uh, Scott's really better at this than I. But their whole life is law. Their whole life, their w every waking hour is somebody or other who's got power over them, usually the schools, and I, I won't say anything other than that. <laughs> um, that's her whole horizon. Yeah. And anything that comes in that says, um, enough, let's go have some fun, is like from heaven itself. Uh, I'm not going to... We're going to have so much fun, you're not going to think of me anymore as somebody who's your controller. We're just going to have fun. I don't care if it's bumper cars. Uh, my dad came in one time and said, go pack your bags. We're flying to Honolulu for two weeks. Just out of the blue. Uh, and it During was, the school year. During yeah, the school year. Yeah. yeah, during the school year. They, they, didn't, they didn't challenge my dad. He didn't ask whether... He just announced to the school that we were going to be gone. And if they wanted us to do some homework, tell him what it was, and he'd see it got done. But we were going. Uh, every year, we up in miserable, gray, rainy Tacoma, Seattle area, every year before there was an Interstate 5, there was only the old 99, every year he pulled us out of school to drive down to Palm Springs, California, to just play. Him and us for two weeks, every single year. Um, and I didn't realize at the time how significant that was, but I was finally out from underneath that constant schooling that said, here's what you have to do next. It was just deliverance. I often wonder why we take that passage, bring up a child in the way they should go into yes. and they will not disappoint you. Why we always connect that to discipline in the law. Yep. I, I actually think that's our own sin that constantly connects that to more discipline, more law. What is the way we should go? The way we should go is to trust in Christ alone, right? To, to rely on the, the message of the gospel of Christ Jesus and the reality of his death and resurrection for us. That's the way we should go, right? And in mm -hmm. the end, we won't be disappointed because our reward is sure because Christ promised it on account of his own resurrection. So what is actually the way they should go? Trusting that. Trust in the gospel. Yeah, trust that. Yeah, I'm sure that if all of us in here right now thought back on our own upbringing, those memories that were formative and would spring to mind, are those moments when someone rescued us yeah. Uh, yeah. From, from the tyranny of, of the law and the oppression of the world, whether it was, you know what, we're going to, you know, we've been overwhelmed, and, and this weekend we're going away. Yep. Or just the power of hearing the word yes yep. yeah. instead of no. Or a good Christmas is from another planet. Mm. 
Well, it's, and it's no mistake the first word an 18-month-old usually learns is no. You know, we shouldn't wonder why they learn no. My, it's, one it's of my children, their first two told. words were no and mine. Yeah, no and mine. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, but, you know, the, the, the criticism that, that we're all going to get is, well, you're just talking about permissiveness. Yep. Yeah, we were just talking And they're going to run all over us. Just talking to someone about that. Uh, Scott's better at this than I, but whatever I mean, it isn't that. Um, if somebody would have charged my dad with being permissive with me, he probably would have furrowed his brow like, really, is that that's what it looks like to you, yeah. huh? <clears throat> he was just clear that I was the son and he was the father, and my calling in the world was not to father him, it was his to father me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that generational confusion is a killer, and I see it especially in women who, when you get down to it, especially as they grow older, somehow their calling is to mother their own mothers. This is a killer. Um, whatever your calling is, it isn't that. You can never be mother to your mother. You can take care of her, but you can never be. That's totally confused. Her, her calling till the day she dies even if she's uh, dementia, is still the generation. She's the mother, you're the daughter. That'll never switch. It's the way it is. If you want a mother, don't mother your mother. Mother your daughter. That keeps it in order. I always, every time I'm asked this question, and I pray at one point that all three of my children will be here when it's asked, because I think the texting phrase is R-O-F-L. You know, they'd be rolling on the floor laughing at whether or not um, they grew up in a permissive house. Mm -hmm. This isn't permissiveness. And I actually think, Rod and I were trying to figure out a way to say this before class. Permissiveness is uh, as legalistic and as burdensome to a child Mm -hmm. as is being too much of a disciplinarian. Um, When you're completely permissive, when the child is the head of the house, right, when the child is in charge of everything, that's to me what permissiveness means. The child's making every decision. The child's yes is always yes. Their no is always no, whatever. Um, they have to become a law unto themselves, and you've actually checked out as their father or mother. Mm-hmm. And you've said, okay, you're at 18 months old. You're smart enough to figure out up from down and right from wrong, so go for it. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. At, when we were talking about it, Rod said, um, you know, at the end of the day, I always knew that my dad had it handled. Had, had whatever situation... It was covered. Was covered. He had it covered. Um, that's kind of more in the neighborhood of what we're talking... What I think what I'm talking about here is that um, when I when we do the do the masculinity thing, I'll say, I'll put capable and strong in there and I, for men. And I don't mean by that, you know, again, bigger muscles or anything like that. But I do mean having a sense that part of your calling is to make sure that those that God has put in your life and, you know, are in your household, um, that they know that you are doing your best to have it covered, mm. you know, and that that's going to mean at times rescuing. That's going to mean at times disciplining for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to mean at times and hopefully more of the time than it is just outright doubling down on the law, forgiving and being gracious. Um, it's going to, it'll mean a lot of things, but what, we're, what I'm asking in the book is, I've often tried to tell people lately that, in fact, I think I wrote it in the second preface to the second edition, 
the Being Dad book and even the Being Dad lectures kind of pick up at the point where I've assumed that if you do have kids, they've already messed up and there's already been consequences either, you know, naturally or by some God-given authority. You, you know, teachers, policemen, whatever, right? The, and then I'm asking the question, now what? Because I think our now what is too often to double down on that punishment and that misery, to, to go at it again and think that, well, what, man, they really messed up and the law's already broken them, but I got to be sure that they never do it again, so I'm going to break them one more time. Well, that's, the scriptures don't speak like that. The only thing that actually changes the heart, the only thing that actually changes the heart of stone to a heart of flesh is the proclamation of forgiveness in the gospel on account of Christ. That's it. That's, that's singular. Singular. Romans 1.16, Romans 10.17, 1 Corinthians 1, 15 through 17. You cannot get around the fact that it's the proclamation of the gospel to the poor sinner that is the only thing that will change them, including their behavior, if that's what you're going at. Uh, let's, uh, let's open it up to some questions because uh, we want to take advantage of, uh, of, the, of the time here. Terrific. Everybody's a great parent. Terrific. Everybody loves the Reformation. Terrific. <laughs> you know, there was a, uh, almost not caught maybe, a little throwaway comment that Rod made. Uh, he said they don't come with instruction books, and they don't. And I think that um, um, as I sit here and listen to this, I remember listening 20 years ago whenever it was you came and having a very similar feeling, even though I was a, a parent of young kids at the time and, and now not. And I just want to offer a sense of encouragement. This is, this is very difficult um, yeah. in some ways. In other ways, it seems very easy. And they don't come with instruction books, but it seems to me that uh, all of us have been hardwired by God Almighty uh, to want to be in relationship with him. We've been hardwired that way, which means our children also are hardwired that way. And the second thing that's a corollary to that as a parent is that uh, as a sense of hope and encouragement, they've been hardwired. Absolutely. 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 Yep. Yeah. Let me yep. follow up with that with one thing. Um, this can get really boring, but when I was doing research for the book, there is a lot of social, sociological data coming out right now um, in the last five years that verifies that children are actually born listening for the voice of their father. You have a video for that. I have a video for it. It's of a, this comedian called Michael Jr., and he's, he sort of um, had taken video when his daughter was born and didn't really watch it. And I think for her 10th birthday, he's sort of editing the video to show it at her 10th birthday. And he notices a couple of things. Um, we were going to show it yesterday, but I forgot. Uh, he, she's crying and crying and crying as she's getting cleaned up, and he just starts calling her name and calling her name. And as soon as he starts calling her name, and he says that... Um, she turns her head towards him and stops crying and sort of, she didn't open her eyes yet, but sort of focuses right on his face. And he said, that was, and he's like, that's amazing. And a few minutes later, she's getting her diaper put on and she's screaming again. And he calls her, I think it's Paige, he calls her name again. 
and then says, I love you, I love you, it's okay, I love you. And she stops crying, she turns her head straight towards him, opens her eyes and looks straight in his eyes. And it's remarkable. And I, I think you're so right, and I'd say even the, uh, the unbelieving sociologists are more and more through the, the various longitudinal studies that they do are discovering that what you just said is absolutely true. At one time, uh, early when Scott was a parent, I said to him, I know it doesn't look like it, but you have more power being a father than the whole culture. That was powerful, by the way, because you worry, I worried about that a lot. Question. Um, many of us in the room are parents, uh, but quite a few of us are also parents. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, the question's about grandparents. Yeah, about grandparents. Oh, you're in a wonderful place. Because the parents are sometimes the enemy, but you're not. Yeah. Yeah. If you use the word, which I have very little use for, spoiling, but if you want to spoil the dickens out of them, go to it. <laughs> I, you know, my grandchildren are very, very young still, so um, they live fairly close by, see them all the time, and... You know, I don't have tons of experience with being a granddad or grandpappy, as she calls me, but I sure love it. It's not working well. Speak up, Stephen. Yeah, you know, I remember that. Yeah. I remember all, they that always feeling. offend one of us. Yeah. And one of us is always really struggling. Yeah. So how does that work? You know, it's that's hard. Your kids are young, you know, and the, one of the things is I, I do this, I teach this quite a bit with Elise Fitzpatrick, who wrote a book called Give Them Grace. Um, her, her book is really focused at parents of younger kids. Um, I don't know if mine is or not, but um, it's hard. And you're at a point where they're learning so much that, um, I think the, the message of the gospel, the message of grace is still really important, but just for their safety, you're, gonna, you're going to be doling out a lot of law, you know, you're, and that's just the, the stage that you're in. The only thing I'd say to you is it doesn't last forever. You know, they, they grow up and they get older and they get to the point where you can speak, talk with them and reason with them and have meals with them that you enjoy and excursions with them that are not just you as a pack mule who vomits money, you know, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, one of the things Dr. Paul Fairweather used to ask in a men's group that a lot of us were a part of, the question was, what does the young child miss? And the answer was, nothing. Yeah. It's going on yeah. all the time. And they're learning more in a shorter amount of time than they will for the rest of their lives. They don't miss anything. Yeah. Two-year-olds are like Surrey. They're always listening. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I, oh. Oh, my Lord. And then, oh. Then, and the correlation really to the suicide going. Right. Yeah. yeah. I was associate dean at a, at 
Concordia University for five years, which means associate dean of students, which essentially meant that I was responsible for the health and welfare of a thousand residential students every day for five years. Uh, the Lord's delivered me from that, so praise God. Um, but this is not what we're talking about. I mean, if you're, if anybody in the room is relating this to helicopter parenting or my favorite snowplow parenting, you know, where you're literally removing every obstacle out of their way so they never face adversity. That's certainly not what I'm talking about because what that produces is chil children who are incapable of almost anything. Anxious, depressed. Anxious, depressed, suicidal, the whole nine yards. Um, I'm a, I am a big proponent of freedom. And freedom entails, in a sense, responsibility. And that's sort of what I'm talking about here is that in order to be gracious, your kids have to actually be doing stuff, and in doing stuff, they're going to mess stuff up, and in messing stuff up, they're going to need forgiveness. But that whole cycle is broken if they're never free enough to do anything, and that's what helicopter parenting and snowplow parenting prevents. Yeah, I'm not German, but I was trapped in teaching at a German university for over 30 years, um, and many times the conversation with the students um, outside class or inside class was, <clears throat> I would say, I didn't rear my children to be obedient. obedient. Yeah, I remember that. I reared them to be free. Boy, that was a shocker when I first heard it in your class. I thought, what the heck is going on? Of course, I had a two-year-old or a one-year-old, and I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> He's going to burn himself on the stove and stuff like that. But, you know, as they get older, I get it. You know, you, if you are just trying to raise obedient children, you're going for the basest level of um, uh, you know, ethical, ethical uh, morality. You know, you're, you're going at the bottom end there. And, and, that's, and, and the church reinforces that because yeah. uh, you, I mean, we were talking that, that one of the greatest fears that the church has is the moral decay yep. yeah. in the United States rather than... More than the loss of the gospel. Yeah, yeah that's the lowest bar. I, I disciplined them. Absolutely. But it, they were going to... Well... It well, it's law and gospel. Yeah, Lutherans would say law and gospel, what's called for here, and deliver it. And it wasn't a balance. It I wasn't, wasn't a balance. No, no Aristotle's about balance. The Bible isn't. Yes. Um, you go with Walther. Our, we have a theologian called C.F.W. Walther. He wrote, the book, he wrote a book called Law and Gospel. And in that book, and he, he says that the job of the pastor, we think the pastor has a bunch of jobs. He says, but the, the primary job of the pastor is to, within his, his flock, realize when the law has done its work. And, and immediately and switch. Come in with the voice of the God, the powerful, life-changing voice of the gospel immediately. Not to dawdle around with the gospel or with the law more after it's already been done. Stop the law then. Stop. It's done its work. I say the same that's, thing to fathers. That's why thousands of that, that little thing I did on the gospel for those broken by the church, that's why it went out by the thousands. When the law has done its work, enough with it to the gospel. That's right. So, yeah, discipline your children, but realize, try, do your best to, to discern in them when the law has done its work and stop. That point of oh, absolutely. I think so. Wait, do you feel like a success as a parent, as a parent when your, uh, your child is 20 years old and they're still doing the quote-unquote right thing because they're scared of you? Or when they do the quote-unquote right thing, because, you know, that's who they are now. 
Well, we're going to have to end it there. Uh, let's have. Let go me, ahead. Yes, Rod. Uh, I brought a bunch of paper back with me. You're welcome to any of it. Uh, I think it's on a table somewhere. There's one by Pelican on the Lutheran Reformation. Take anything you want. That's what I brought it here for. You're welcome to buy as many books as you want, too. Yeah, and also yeah. buy as much. Well, let's have a quick word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that uh, even the gates of hell will not prevail against your church and that we would uh, seek uh, to uh, dwell in the shadow of your cross than to be soldiers who soldier on. And Lord, that we would proclaim uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has the power to free uh, and to forgive. And for uh, the ministry of Scott and Rod and the 1517 Legacy Project, we pray that it would go from strength to strength and that they might boldly proclaim Uh, the gospel to this sinful and broken world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.